Good morning. I was curious, you know, sitting here up front, not wanting to look back of how many people would actually show up to a Sunday morning, January 1st. This is pretty impressive. Well done. How, how many people stayed up really late last night? Raise your hand. Dang. Eddie. Oh, Eddie, you're just kind of slipping up back there. I see it. I think Elijah made the comment, was it on Christmas Eve? These are the Navy SEALs of the church, you know, show up, true faithfulness and devotion. Uh, thank you, Elijah. Um, it's always a privilege to have the opportunity to share from God's word with you all. It's been a while since I've preached at Foundry, and I'm excited to get back in the pulpit and have this opportunity. So thank you to Elijah. And uh, I want to express my thanks to Elijah, too, for being a pastor is, in my opinion, one of the, if not the hardest jobs in the whole wide world. Uh, and it's not just an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. And I'm not just trying to fluff up Elijah. I mean, the job of a pastor is to do the impossible. And that is to be a part of a transformation of human hearts, which is an impossible feat. And it is never ending. And it requires so much effort and long suffering and patience and phone calls and texts in the middle of the night. I need, and like, we all know how stubborn the human heart is. If we've read the New Testament, and if we truly understand ourselves. And aren't you thankful this morning that that's one thing that Jesus shows us is who we really are. You know, we have all these wrong concepts and ideas who, of who we are. But one of the things Jesus gracefully does for us is he shows us the content of our heart. And we know that we're impossible and we're stubborn and we're proud. And Elijah's wonderful job is to work with us every day and to, and, and to move us towards Christ-likeness with the grace and help of the Holy Spirit. And the idea of preparing a sermon every Sunday and all the effort, you're always on. You never get to just shut it off. And so thank you, Pastor Elijah, for all the work that you do. As he already mentioned, um, and by the way, love the sermon series, Cruciform, and he already mentioned kind of what that word means. Cruci, the idea of crucifix or crucifixion, the cross and form is the shape of. And so the shape of the cross is the kind of the definition behind that word, cruciform, the shape of the cross. And the question that we're trying to answer, or at least we're trying to treat in the sermon series over the next several weeks, is what does the shape of our lives look like in light of the cross? What does the Christian life look like in light of the cross? And that's kind of a, uh, a tricky and deep and difficult and rather complex question to answer. Because as I was kind of wandering around the lobby this morning, I was talking to Noah Killebrew, and um, we were talking about the sermon series this morning, and he said, cruciform and cross-shaped, and he went like this. He said, we should just need to walk around like this. And, and you know what? It's, it's an outward sign of an inward reality because this is the symbol of sacrifice for the sake of love. That's what it is. And that is a tough thing for us as selfish, prideful, egotistical humans to do is live a life that looks like this. That is constant sacrifice. This is a hard topic. There's lots of different places in the scripture that we could go to to look at what this means or what are some of the attributes or characteristics of what it means to live a cruciform life, a life that is enlightened by or at least shaped by the cross. And where the Holy Spirit led me in my preparation uh, to preach this morning is to the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'll invite you to open to the book of Revelation. If you're not familiar with Revelation, I won't be surprised because it's not one of those books that you hear pastors preach from very much. You know, we're very fond of 
the Gospels, we're fond of the epistles, but the book of Revelation is kind of a tricky book to understand and to preach. So it's the last book of your New Testament and of your Bibles. It is the capstone of what we call the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture is Genesis to Revelation. It is the final symbol crash culminating moment where God's purposes are fulfilled for the world and for the creation and for the church uh, as dis on display in the book of Revelation. One of the reasons why Revelation is really tricky is because there's so much symbolism. And it's symbolism that is referring to realities that are very far removed from our 21st century uh, realities and experiences. When we read things about beasts emerging up out of the sea and out of the land and red dragons with seven heads and tails that bring down stars and diadems and slaughtered lambs and uh, these strange creatures that are before the throne of God that have the head like a lion and an eagle and a human, etc. It's just really odd. And we go, what in the world is this about? But thankfully, um, I believe very much, and I want to give you this as um, something to keep in mind as you're working through, your, through the Bible in a year. Um, Elijah said, you know, this may seem like a heavy lift for some of us to try to read through the Bible in the year. Honestly, I, I'm going to contradict Elijah. It's not that heavy. <laughs> it's not that long of a book. I know it is a long book, but like, do it. Commit to it and do it. Sacrifice. That's what the cross life is about. It's about doing things you don't in your natural state want to do. So commit to it and do it. But you're going, but not, it's not just big, Matt. It's complicated. How am I supposed to understand? You know, so many people, there's so many uh, um, abandoned vehicles on the roadside of Leviticus you know, uh, for commitments to read through the Bible in the year. You know, they get through Genesis and we're making an Exodus. They start to slow down a bit and, you know, six cylinders starts firing on four cylinders. Then Leviticus chapter two, they're like, all right, I'm just going to wait until, you know, maybe Isaiah comes back around or the Psalms. But here's the thing about the scriptures is that um, in terms of it being hard and in terms of it being difficult is that we have the Holy Spirit as a helper. We have the Holy Spirit to help us, number one, have the discipline. Number two, have the energy. Number three, understand the book. I very much believe in the doctrine of the clarity or the simplicity of Scripture, which says that the message of the text, what the text means, is clear to us. Is it hard to arrive at sometimes? Yes, but ultimately we can understand what the book means because the Holy Spirit who inspired its writing also inspires its reading. And so as you're reading the text, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and shows us what the text means for us today. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, where do I find support for this notion of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture? Well, the Bible says this in Psalm 19, that the Scriptures can be used to make wise the simple, which means that simple people can understand it. And if simple people can understand it, then I can understand it. How is that? Because the Holy Spirit helps us to understand it. How can a child possibly have a saving relationship with Jesus when it's so complicated? Because the Holy Spirit interprets the meaning and the person of Jesus to the human heart, whether you're four years old or 90 years old, or maybe even someone with dementia or someone with a mental disability. It's not our own understanding that gets us saved. It's the interpretation of the Holy Spirit to our hearts that helps us to understand, right? So as we commit to reading the scriptures, we depend on the helper who is the Holy Spirit. 
And thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit to clarify the meaning of the text. So Revelation, tough book, but nonetheless, I think there are some principles in the second chapter that I want to draw out in this letter to the church of Ephesus uh, that teach us what a uh, cross-shaped life looks like. And before I even read the little fancy word, pericope or segment of text from Revelation, uh, and it's Revelation, singular, not Revelations, uh, chapter two, uh, verses one to seven, I want to observe the simple fact that we're in the book of Revelation. I've already made comments about the nature of the literature. It's apocalyptic, it's symbolic, it's a little bit challenging to read. But here's the point, Revelation is the fulfillment and the culmination of God's plans and purposes for the creation. There is a goal that we're driving at here. Here we are January 1st, and a lot of churches are gonna have fancy sermon titles or sermon series called like Reset. And, and we have this sort of cyclical nature to life, right? We're back in January again. And in 12 months, we'll be back in January again. And in 12 months, we'll be back in January again. And there's certainly repeated patterns to life, but it is not an infinite circle. It is going somewhere with a purpose. And the cruciform life goes somewhere with a purpose. A cross-shaped life is a life of calling. That's number one, calling. We have a calling. We have a calling as a church. We have a calling as individuals. We are going somewhere. We're not just repeating the pattern over and over again. And every single Christian as a member of the body has a gift with a purpose, a teleos, a calling. We see this in the cross and in Jesus himself. The cross is the fulfillment of God's purposes. Jesus's life was going somewhere from before time until the culmination. Think about for a moment with me, Jesus's baptism. It's when his ministry began. We don't have much information about Jesus before his baptism. The gospels aren't simply about the biography of Jesus. Jesus's great-great-grandparents, there's some of that in there, but it ends in chapter two. And then it moves on into the ministry. Jesus, the story of Jesus begins, at least as it's told to us in the gospel, with his baptism. This is his anointing to move forward on the mission. We see this too. I want to recall uh, the Christmas story, of course, we have the wise men. How many wise men were there? More than, one. <laughs> More than one. Heather says we don't know. A lot of people want to say three. There were three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men there are. What were the three gifts? Give me one. Uh, we usually start with gold. Someone shouted out. Who shouted out myrrh first? <laughs> Marching to the beat of his own drummer. I love it. And we'll get to myrrh. Gold, because he's a king, right? What's the second? Frankincense, because he's a priest. Aren't you glad we have a priest? interceding on our behalf, making up for all our deficiencies. Aren't you glad he's the king and I'm not the king and you're not the king, but he's the king? But finally, myrrh. So gold is royalty, frankincense is priesthood, and myrrh is for his anointing for burial. This is really odd that these guys would show up at the, Elijah talked about babies being born. Imagine that one of these babies were born and Elijah shows up at the hospital with a tombstone with the name of the baby carved on it. That would be really morbid and depressing, but that's what's happening. Jesus was born for the purpose of dying. 
That was his mission. Listen, the guy you're following, his whole purpose is this. How do you expect to end up? Just like this. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Do you know what that foreshadows? Being wrapped up after being taken down off the cross and being laid in the tomb. Why do they include that detail in the text? To point forward to the purpose of his coming. Jesus is at the wedding of Cana. I love babies being born. I love weddings. I always cry at weddings. One time, Elijah leaned over to me and said, Matt, don't cry at this wedding. You know, it probably won't work out. I said, okay. <laughs> He's at the wedding of Cana. And they run out of wine, and his mother goes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Who remembers what Jesus said in response to that? She's asking him to do something, and he's saying no. By the way, Jesus doesn't always do what you ask him to do. Now, he does respond to his mother's request, by the way, but sometimes he doesn't do. Uh, he didn't do what John the Baptist asked him to do. So any, will you follow him anyway if he doesn't give you what you want? Different sermon, different day. What does he say in response to her when she says they ran out of wine? He says, woman, what's that to me or to you? My time has not come yet. And what is he referring to? His death. Jesus had a calling on his life and the cross is the fulfillment of that calling. The cruciform Christian life, it is one that is marked by calling. What is your calling? It's pointing towards something. And we have to determine what this is. So what does the cruciform life look like? Number one, calling. If you wanna look more like Jesus in 2023, figure out what your calling is. That is absolutely necessary to be cruciform. Okay, so that's my comment on the book of Revelation as a whole. The teleos, the per teleos is just a word that means the purpose, the end game, the goal of God's, the fulfillment of God's plan and his purposes in the world. So now, <clears throat> let's go to the first verse of chapter two that says this. This is odd. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, right out the gate, this is a little odd. He's talking about, you're writing this letter to an angel. How many people here, and I don't mean metaphorically your girlfriend or fiance or whatever, how many people have written a letter to an angel before? Right, this is odd. This is far from our experience. And in the book of Revelation, Revelation, the unveiling, the curtain is pulled back on the unseen realm. And we see, as I said before, some really bizarre things like angels and beasts and dragons and a woman giving birth in heaven and all. As the cruciform life, it is not just one of calling, it is one of faith. Faith in three things. One, the unseen. We believe, just as Jesus believed, in really odd, supernatural, miraculous stuff. As Christians, we must refuse to demythologize scripture. We believe in things like angels, in things like Satan, in things like a virgin birth, in the thing like a bodily resurrection. We believe that we're following a man who claimed to be God in flesh. That is some strange stuff. 
Let me give you one more strange thing that we believe. We believe that God can transform who we are. Nobody else believes that. That is unique to the Christian faith. And so to have a cruciformed life, we believe in the unseen, unusual, really strange things. Why is this important and what does it have to do with the cross? Who would have thought that God dying a cursed death on a cross would redeem the world? God's thoughts are different than our thoughts, and we walk according to a way that is bizarre and odd to the world. Keep Christianity weird. The moment Christianity stops being weird, it stops being Christianity. When you try to make your faith palatable to a non-believer, now, if it's guided by the Holy Spirit and you're having apologetic argument, okay, whatever. But the bottom line is Christianity has to be weird. The world needs weird. The world needs something different, set apart, holy, miraculous, supernatural, and unexplainable. This is what we need. The cross is not a human idea. No one would ever think that this is God's plan for redeeming the world. So when it comes time to obeying God, remember Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples and Peter says, he says to Peter, who do people say that I am? He says, well, some say that you're this and some say that you're that. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, it is not flesh and blood who has revealed this to you. This is not an idea that you could come up with on your own. This is an idea that came down from heaven, that's odd, that's bizarre. You are God enfleshed. This, but this has been revealed to you, not by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, now I've got to die. And Peter says, don't talk like that. And then how does Jesus respond to Peter when Peter says, don't talk like that? Get behind me, Satan. Peter couldn't conceive of God's ideas. The cruciform life doesn't think according to men. The cruciform life thinks according to God. And we embrace things like virgin births, bodily resurrections, and the transformation of the human heart. And we also embrace this really strange idea that through the through that God is redeeming the world through a bunch of dysfunctional people like Foundry Church. That's an odd idea, but it's the truth and it's the thought of God. Through the brokenness of the church, I will heal the world. We've got to think God's thoughts. Imagine if Jesus wasn't thinking God's thoughts, he would have never ended up at the cross. Time and time again, everything from Satan to his own disciples to the Sanhedrin said, no, this isn't the way. And the world all around us Christians will say to us, this isn't the way. We are people of faith. We are people of faith, people who think God's thoughts. But beyond faith in the unseen, but we also have faith in the big word, theological term, efficacy of the atonement. Now, this is big faith. What do I mean by that? Does anyone know what the word efficacy means? Effectiveness. Jesus' work on the cross, it worked. And Satan and the world wants to come alongside of you every day and in every moment and say, no, it didn't. You are still in your sin. You are not forgiven. You are still shamed. You can't be transformed. In this image, we see Jesus 
with stars in his right hand and walking among the lampstands. That's one way. It means several different things. But the one thing it's telling us is that he won. And as we live the cruciform life, we believe that Jesus' work worked. It was effective. It was enough to transform me. Not just transform my behaviors, but to transform my thoughts, to transform my attitudes, and to transform my desires. I hate when Christians say things like this, well, I'll just always be a sinner. And what they mean by that, what they mean by that is, I expect to always fail and fall into sin. That spits on the cross. What it says is, Jesus, what you did there is not enough for this situation. And that's a lie. The cruciform life believes in the victory of the risenness of Christ. It is one that is victorious over the passions and desires of the flesh. Calling, faith, faith in the unseen, thinking God's thoughts, not the world's thoughts, faith in the efficacy of the atonement. But also, here's the one that I have the hardest time believing, and I've already mentioned it, faith in the church. Faith in the church. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. This is the letter to the church at Ephesus. This is part of the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus says the way to salvation is through me and my body is the church. That means the cruciformed life must be, not an option, a part of the church. There is no such thing as the man in his island and his faith and his Jesus. Doesn't exist. God only saves individuals through Jesus, and Jesus has chosen the church as his mechanism for salvation. And I come across this mindset, this hyper-individualized spirituality of me and my Jesus because I don't like the institution. You know how arrogant that is? What you're saying is you're better than everybody else. Oh, get off it. Salvation's through the church and only through the church because the church is the body of Christ. Now that's hard, because we know how dysfunctional we are. These seven letters to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, Thyatira, Philadelphia, all this, all of them receive rebuke except for two. In other words, they all have failures except for Smyrna and Philadelphia. No failures mentioned. Which means if Jesus were writing a letter to us, Boundary Church, there probably would be rebuke in there. We all have our issues. We all have our dysfunctions. But it doesn't mean that it's not the means through which God chooses to save the world. Get off it. Get off of thinking that you're going to be saved over there in a corner by yourself. That is not how it works. He has chosen the church. Get humble. He has chosen you. He has chosen this dysfunctional, broken up, busted little body to transform the whole world. You know why? Because he can, because he's God. He chose this infertile family, Abraham and Sarah, to produce the biggest family the world's ever seen. And he can use this little infertile family to transform Jackson, Mississippi. And to think you're going to do it alone is a lie of the devil. This is where my big hangup was before coming back to my faith. God, I, I know you're the truth. Jesus, I know you're the son of God. I know you died on my behalf. I know my sins are forgiven. I know the Bible is the truth and the word of God, but I don't want to be a Christian because I don't like those people. 
I don't like how they look. I don't like how they dress. I don't like the way that they behave. I don't like anything about them. I don't want to be called a Christian. I don't want to be a part of that. How arrogant. Number one. Number two, God spoke to me. He's so gentle and kind. He didn't say, you arrogant little smut. It's not what he said. I was in a yoga session (laughs) when God spoke to me. If God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through a yoga instructor. But be really careful. You need witnesses to what's being declared, right? And I'm not, yeah, I don't have to provide all these provisos. And the yoga instructor was actually a Roman Catholic lady, and she said a quote, and the quote was something like this. And the Lord said, listen, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be what he said. It's not about you and them. It's about you and me. You don't worry about them. And I'm telling you, go to the church. And that was the changing moment for me. It's not about you and them. It's about you and him. And he's telling you, salvation comes through the church. Obey. We got to have faith in the unseen, thinking God's thoughts. We got to have faith in the efficacy of the atonement. What he did worked and can deliver us from the power of sin. And we've got to have faith in the church. We've got to be in church and we've got to support one another. If we can't do it here, if we can't live out the redeemed life of Jesus here, who can? This is the only place of hope on the planet. Don't let some past history of someone in the church, of course someone in the church burned you and hurt you. Of course they did. Get over it. Let God handle that, forgive and move on and be a part of the church. We have to have faith in the church. Amen? Amen. By the way, when preachers get up and preach, trying to stay behind the black box, more than anything else, we are speaking to ourselves. I hope you understand that. When you see us get passionate and excited, it's the things that we need to hear that God is showing us right now. We're just letting you in on the conversation. This is the thing I struggle with the most, having faith in the church. But guess what? It's Jesus's perfect righteousness, not mine and not yours, that gives me hope. And if, he, if I have hope that he can transform me, I have hope that he can transform all of us. Let's be humble together. Okay. Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. I want to point this out. This is important. As if I say that as if the other stuff wasn't important. It wasn't. Why Ephesus? So I've mentioned seven letters to the seven churches. Every single one of those churches are Gentile churches. And every single one of them are suffering persecution. And every single one of them are being rejected by their communities. So the cruciform life is marked by calling, it is marked by faith, and it is marked by rejection. If you're following Jesus, you will be rejected because he was rejected. The church at Ephesus was rejected. The church at Thyatira was rejected. And you too will be rejected. The cruciform life is marked by rejection. I've already mentioned the story of Jesus being born wrapped in swaddling clothes and and his mother placed him in a manger. That is the foreshadowing of the ultimate moment of rejection. Let me read this great, great John 1, 9 to 13, or yeah, 
The Gospel of John, chapter one, verses nine to 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people rejected him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Where God sends us in our calling, we have to expect to be rejected, which we have to understand, especially in our very quickly uh, becoming more and more post-Christian nation. Christianity has been accepted by our culture for centuries, and we are in a liminal moment, which means a cusp moment, shifting into a time where Christianity is being rejected by our nation. In order for us to stay faithful to the witness of Jesus and the proclamation of the word, we have to be ready to be rejected. These churches were rejected, and we have to be ready to be rejected. So, The cruciform life is marked by calling, it is marked by faith, and it is marked by rejection. One thing that I really struggle with, I deal with pastors. That's my job. That's my calling. (laughs) My calling is dealing with pastors. Think pastors' jobs are impossible. Think about what my job is like. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Pastors are great. Heard the story of a friend of mine who was talking to a local church pastor of one of the biggest churches in Jackson. New guy new pastor. And he said, hey, what's your view on human sexuality issue and homosexuality and all the sexual revolution stuff? And he wouldn't answer. The pastor wouldn't answer. So he kept pushing him. You're not answering me. You're dodging the question. He kept pushing him. Someone's dodging a question. You know what the answer is already, by the way. Kept pushing him. Finally got the answer. And his answer was what the Bible says about human sexuality. And then my friend said to the pastor, will you preach that? He said, no. Uh-uh. Too risky, too dangerous, too painful. What business do you think you're in? That's the cruciform life is risky, dangerous, and painful. The world rejected Jesus and he ended up on a cross. And when we are faithful as Jesus is faithful, they will drive nails into your hands and into your feet and pierce your side. But God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We expect to be rejected. If you don't like the idea of rejection, here's the thing. I hate the idea of rejection. I want to be accepted. I love the idea of being a part of things. How do we come up with the inspiration, the motivation to be faithful in those times. Once again, we have a helper and his name is the Holy Spirit. He helps us. Rejection. This is our calling. When we're faithful, we will be rejected. Okay, let's keep going. We have a few minutes left here. I know your works, verse two. Oh, By the way, the seven stars in the right hand are the seven churches. We get that in the previous chapter. And the seven golden lampstands, excuse me, the seven stars in the right hand are not seven churches, are the seven angels to the seven churches. That's what they symbolize. That Jesus has the church in his hand. That's the, or has the angel. And then the seven golden lampstands represent the churches. All this is revealed in the first chapter. So in other words, it's saying that Jesus is in your midst. He is with us. In other words, if you're in the church, you're in Jesus's presence. 
If you're outside of the church, you're outside of Jesus's presence. Okay, so I wanted to give the meaning to that. Verse two, I know your works, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. The cruciform life is one of calling, it's one of faith, it's one of rejection, and it's one of sacrifice, sacrifice. And this is probably the big one, right? This is what this represents, is sacrifice. And this is so counter-human nature, is to make sacrifices. It is so hard for us because we are so selfish and we are so egotistical. If you think you're not, again, you don't understand who you are. You haven't come to the end of yourself yet. Sacrifice. This church has made the sacrifice of standing on the proclamation of truth. What what do I mean by that? There were people in this time, in this place, first century, you know, uh, Ephesus, they were going, look, you're being persecuted by the Romans and by the Jews because you refuse to capitulate to what they're promoting in the culture around you. If you just capitulate, everything will be good and comfortable for you, and you won't have this discomfort of being persecuted and rejected. And Jesus is commending them for standing firm and making the sacrifice for the sake of truth. Here's one thing, if I, you know, trying to make things practical for us this morning, come up with today, January 1st, at least one thing you are going to sacrifice or focus on sacrificing in 2023. Because if anything is cruciform, it is the life of sacrifice. Give up that time on YouTube to read your Bible more. Give up that, sacrifice that relationship that you really don't want to sacrifice, but you know that God's not in it. He's not anointed. It's not a part of his will for your life. Sacrifice it sacrifice. They made the sacrifice of standing on the truth and suffering as a result. Okay, let's keep going. A little time we have left. I know you are patiently enduring, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Um, The cruciform life is one of calling. It's one of faith. It's one of, what was the third one, guys? Rejection. Rejection. It's one of sacrifice, and it's one of strength. You have not given up. You have stood firm. You have not grown weary. We are weak. We are the weakest culture that's ever lived in the history of civilization. Weak, 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 weak. W-E-A-K. We are weak. We are weak people. Everything is handed to us. Come with me for one day to the country of Haiti and you will see how weak you are. People lose their electricity for 24 hours. Haiti's never had electricity. My pipes broke. Come on. Is it a pain? Yes. And listen, remember, I'm talking to myself. We, the cruciform life is one of strength. Jesus was strong. I try to fast, right? I go one day and I walk into the break room at work and somebody got donuts and it's been about 16 hours. I'm like, oh man. I just felt my headache sit on. I need to eat that donut. 40 days without water or bread, and the devil comes. And the devil always comes to you in the time of weakness. We are weak, but the cruciform life is one of strength. And it's one of not giving in. It's one of not giving in to our emotions when they try to take over us. It's one of not giving in to lust. It's one of not giving in to just fulfilling the appetites. That's what our culture is trying to make us fat and gluttonous on is the fulfillment of your appetites. We have to be strong. 
as Christians because Jesus was strong. If Jesus was strong, he would have never stayed on the cross. He would have never gone to the cross in the first place. And his strength redeemed the world. We have to be strong. I'll, I'll finish with that. Our time is up. I, 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 in preaching, I often do altar calls where people you know, come up to the altar. And, and I know what it's like to sit there when you feel like the Holy Spirit's saying you need to go to the altar, but you're worried about what people think and all this stuff. It's, well, that's gonna be uncomfortable. Jesus was uncomfortable on the cross. Be strong and go to the altar. You're in church because you know you have a problem. That's why we're here. Be strong. Stop being weak. Man, we could have a whole sermon series on that one. So I'll finish. The, oh, I have to get this last one in, love. He says, the one thing I have against you, if you, you stop loving, you've lost your first love. The cruciform life is marked by love. Look, we can be obedient. We can have faith. We can believe in the virgin birth, bodily resurrection. We can defend the faith. We can make sacrifices. We can go to church, have faith in the church. But if you don't love people, you're not a church. A congregation without love is no church. And it's our three kinds of love. Number one, love for Jesus. Number two, love for the church, each other. We have to love each other well. Number three, love for your enemies. The cruciform life, that's what this is. This pain, sacrifice, strength, all for the sake of loving our enemies well. It is the one thing that marks the church off from everybody else. We love our enemies. So the cruciform life is one of calling. It is one of, I always already forget the second one. When you have seven kids, this happens. Seven kids under your roof. Faith, <laughs> rejection, sacrifice, strength, and love. And the one more I had it was obedience, but that'll have to go for now.